Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, Ray, it's Punk Rock Month on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Yeah. And today, we are going to revisit an episode we love dearly, a band that made an impact on so many lives because people who heard their first album and loved it started bands. And it's not the Velvets without Lou, so we'll have some fun and you enjoy as well. Brought to you by Boldfoot Socks at boldfoot.com and by Crook and I Brewery in the heart of Hapro, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. And now, Lou. Marcus, I just want to say one thing. What do you want to say? Sally can't dance. You know Sally can't dance, right? She's not a good dancer. Also, I love you, Suzanne. Oh, we're going to just list Lou Reed songs? <laughs> <laughs> we know him as L-O-U, Lou. But Lewis, L-E-W-I-S, Allen with two L's and an A, Reed. He's from Brooklyn, Marcus. He was born there in a Brookdale Hospital, Bethel Hospital, in March 1942. It's a long fucking time ago, I'll say that. <laughs> if he was still with us, he'd certainly be an old fucker by now. But think about it. One person in this crazy blue marble brought out the sweetest side of the man. I'm talking about his wife of many years, Laurie Anderson, who's also one of my favorite cool, kooky artists in her own right. She found the warmth in him and brought it out. And it was there in early parts of his life. She brought it out after all the weird shit that we found out that Lou went through on his path through life. It's kind of surprising when we get into it, some of the stuff that happened and an issue that has come up multiple times in our conversations about rock and roll is trauma in the childhood in some form or another. And we're going to see it again with Mr. Lewis Allen Reed. And it's so weird to see it spelled that way after only seeing your whole life, mostly Lou, L-O-U, like he's an Italian guy. R-E-E-D, nothing in between, just bam, right? Lou Reed, and that was it. Well, you know, Lou, early on in life, was known to have some panic attacks. His sister, who was known as Merle, even though she was born as Margaret, I guess that's one of those things that happened when you were a kid. She would say that he was awkward and had a fragile temperament, as I believe the way it was put in an article I saw. A fragile temperament? Does that mean that he was uh, prone to blow his stack here and there? That's 1950s speak for, hey, come down there, Sonny. Well, a couple things come into play here, though. He starts to play with drugs at age 16, which means that's right around the time I was born. I was a little bitty baby, and Lou Reed was doing drugs already, Marcus. Another thing, and we, we talked about this a little bit on the Grateful Dead episode, like Bob Weir, Lou Reed was dyslexic. 
which can lead to a lot of that what you call mishigas, where your head's all fucked up. Yeah, you know, you go kind of that confusion. It's not that, quite right. Yeah. <laughs> it's becoming yeah. a theme on this podcast. You know that he has trouble with letters. That's totally the way it was done back in those days. They whispered everything. So weird. We're not whispering, but we did forget to mention that this is the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It is Listener Episode Month here on the podcast. And we got to thank Frank McKenzie from the UK for uh, suggesting that we do this episode about Lou and the Velvet Underground on the Imbalanced History. Brought to you by Crooked Eye Brewery in Hapro. By the way, I was in there, Marcus. Looking good. Really? Is it prime and ready to go? We got to get in there and do our thing. We really do. I really want to do another recording over there with the beer being brewed behind us. That was so much fun last time. You must be looking at my notes because that's a perfect play into where I want to go next on this episode about young Lou. And I guess you could say his uh, superhero friends, right? It picks him <laughs> up along the way. He was, as we mentioned before on the podcast, in a doo-wop group called The Jades and did his first recording with them, providing guitar and backup vocals. And that was in his uh, junior high years, again, in 1958. It was a different musical universe back then. We were discussing that in the Beach Boys episode about all the smooth vocals and uh, corner music doo-wop and all that, which reminds me, we still got to get Harvey Holiday to come on and talk about that era. Yes, we do. Doo-wop's important. Well, they won this talent show the Jades did at their uh, high school or their junior high and won the opportunity to record a couple songs. So they did songs called So Blue and Leave Her For Me. And nothing really happened with them, although they did get played on the radio. But they got King Curtis. The producer brought him in. The great saxophonist King Curtis came in and played on both of the songs. Now, that's got to be cool if you're a junior high kid. You've got a name guy playing on your single. You're thinking, we're going to make it. Walk down to your house last night. See if you were home. Found out that you've gone out. And I was all alone. So blue, so blue. So blue, so blue. I'm always crying over you. So blue, so blue, crying over you. Went to the candy store, but you weren't there. Somehow I knew deep down that you weren't there. So blue, so blue, so blue, so blue. I'm always crying. That's seriously, that's a huge boost to your confidence when you have an experience like that. Bunch of kids new to this whole game, getting their feet wet, writing this song that they just love, getting in there and recording it, being able to record it because they won a talent show. And then this legend shows up and blows a horn in their uh, recording. Holy shit. It could only get better if you got it played on a radio. So... The way happenstance does happen. Mary the K must have taken a week off. There was a substitute DJ. He slid it into his stack, and they played it. And that's the first time that young Lou and his friends heard their music over the airwaves, something that would become addictive for him throughout his life, wanting that feeling, that vindication, that validation. And he would get it in a lot of different ways through the years. Well, I'll tell you one area in his life where he wasn't getting a whole lot of support, though, Marcus, and that was from his family. 
when he went off to college, by the way, he is part of the proud tradition of Syracuse University. I have so many friends who went to Syracuse. And if you look at the list of famous alum, Lou's only about halfway up the list, you know. So many famous and talented people who came from Syracuse. So he goes there and he's having all these depression and anxiety and isolation is kind of feelings. And his parents visit a psychologist who makes them feel that they're the inadequate ones because they're not taking care of business with their son, even though he's the one having difficulty coping. Could it have been partially from the dyslexia? Could it be normal teenage angst, which was getting different by the end of the 50s? I don't know. But they weren't his biggest supporters at that moment, no matter what would happen in the future, no matter what led up to it, because they agreed for him to have what they call electroconvulsive therapy. Shock treatments. We're going to shock it out of him. That's just insane to even think about that. I would have punched my old man in the nutsack and said, here, there's your shock and awe. Yeah. That's bullshit, man. And it happened. And he was nothing more than a creative guy who wasn't quite into the, let's go to Madison Avenue and take over the world. He wasn't that kind of a person. And being kind of low-key and, uh, you know, uh, angst-ridden kind of, you know, led to this thing. And it's horrible. I can't even imagine being in that type of a situation. But also that time was kind of crazy as far as holding things in and mm-hmm. not understanding and not even, I don't even know if it's not understanding, but not caring enough to understand, just saying, hey, you have to be born this way perfectly. And if not, sh- things like shock therapy and shock treatment. Right, right. Well, remember that a lot of that ethos, that fucked up backwards way of thinking about life, was part of the post-war America thinking. We won, so we're right about everything, and we learned that that wasn't true. But, you know, Lou kind of went his own way, and further down the road, like a lot of artists will, reinvented his history, reinvented his truth. And when discussing the treatments that he was given he made it clear that he felt as if they were trying to shock the homosexual out of him. And I get where he's coming from because he wasn't somebody who was locked in a box, right? He wasn't just going to go off to college and then get married and have 2.4 children and do the whole thing the way it's all been set out for him. He was going to take his own path. But after Lou died, his sister said, that their folks weren't homophobic. The doctors told them that the treatments were necessary to treat Lou's mental and behavioral issues. Well, I still put it back on the parents because they went to see a doctor over their teenager feeling morose. Wow. That mentality from that time period is disturbing because it seemed like for everything with uh, mental health and and the fact that they tried to shock the homosexual urges out of him or feelings out of him or whatever it was at that time, that doesn't even make sense. He found his way through after that, and I don't know that they ever shocked anything out of him, that he remained the guy he was. And when he was at Syracuse, here's a neat thing. It's that two degrees of separation thing. I worked in my radio career with multiple people, including my pal Ted Utz, who worked at the college radio station at WAAR 
there in Syracuse. A lot of people worked at the college station. Lou worked at the college radio station. He did a show called The Excursions on a Wobbly Rail, which was a song by Cecil Taylor. Very hip and jazzy, kind of a beats kind of a thing. If you think about the time frame, you're talking about when Jim Brown had just been at Syracuse and uh, the Elmira Express had just arrived. All these things were going on. All this change was happening in Syracuse was in the middle of it and it was there that he met a friend who had remained a friend of his for his whole life and you wouldn't naturally think that lou reed and garland jeffries were that tight but they weren't that's where they hooked up syracuse pretty cool yes syracuse has a huge pedigree of names of people that are in the creative world who have done amazing things and really well yes absolutely i mean syracuse was in that time, Jim Brown, you mentioned, the greatest lacrosse player ever to live because who the hell was going to stop him running down the field with a lacrosse stick? Nobody. <laughs> Zero exactly. people were going to stop him. So. Well, you know, my buddy Ted played lacrosse at Syracuse, and it's still one of his big passions is the, that team and that program. And yeah, you, you put a stick in that man's head. Are you nuts? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, what a super athlete Jim Brown was and what a superhuman being. Just a groundbreaker in so many aspects. Walked away from the game so that he could change the real game in life and worked hard all his life. Recently, he's been slowing down a little bit, but all his life given to the dedication of change. Back to Lou, though. Syracuse University. At Syracuse, there was a quiet crowd. They'd meet at the Orange Grove, you know, like one of those little spots on campus, right? And uh, Garland Jeffries was part of that. It was him and Lou and a couple of their friends. And their friend Delmore was the quiet leader, is what Jeffries called him. And that time frame is when Lou was introduced to IV drugs for the first time. And that's where he contracted hepatitis. So these things were happening back then. It was well before him being in the middle of the New York scene. Oh, let's tie some things together here. All right. Sterling Morrison, member of the Velvet Underground, met Lou, but he wasn't going to Syracuse. He was visiting Jim Tucker, who was the older brother of Velvet drummer Mo Tucker. See how this all comes together? It's kind of weird because the guy's up there visiting Mo Tucker's older brother. How does he run into Lou? Are they talking at that little pub having yeah, a brew? Maybe. You know, do they run into each other in the commons and like bump into each other? Hey, hey, ooh, hey, whoops. Well, he met Lou while he was there to visit Jim. Now, Mo also was attending Syracuse. So you're talking about a pretty active art community there in the early mid 60s for this kind of thing to be coagulating there. Again, the art scene in Syracuse seemed to pull a lot of uh, strange combinations together to make some pretty cool art, whether it be music, whether it be anything. And that time, like we keep saying, super important in Syracuse history. Jump back a second. I made reference to Delmore being part of the crew, the quiet crew. He was a teacher. He taught Lou. He studied poetry under Delmore. His last name is Schwartz who Lou said was the first great person I ever met. And that's how they became friends. So older guy, poet, teacher, they became pals. They became part of their crew there at Syracuse. And this, think about it, it's the seeds of the Velvet Underground. How many miles west of New York City? Already coming together. 
And the neat thing is, they didn't forget European Sun from the first Velvet Underground album, dedicated to Delmore Schwartz, part of the Quiet Crew. Graduation comes, and there's a B.A. cum laude in English. June 1964, Lou Reed moves to New York City. It's going to be an in-house songwriter. You ever hear of Pickwick Records? I've heard of them, and if I look at some of my old family uh, 45s and 78s, I'm sure I can find Pickwick in there. And yeah, that's what, what I'm thinking, too, because they were part of a records group with D-Light Records. I remember my sister maybe having a D-Light record. That's hilarious. Uh, or Sonnet, Hallmark, all these little labels all working under the Pickwick label. Pretty cool, though. Pretty big in England, too. So he was going to work on the American side of the pond for a British conglomerate. And you can hear him early on in a couple recordings that he was doing in that time frame, lending his voice on a couple cuts here and there. Yeah, he uh, also at one point in a later interview revisiting the Pickwick years called himself the poor man's Carol King in a jokingly <laughs> way. <laughs> The man could turn a phrase, I'll tell you that. All right, so sometimes in rock and roll, people's biggest success comes after terrible failure, right? Absolutely. Lou writes this song. It's called The Ostrich. And <laughs> he was trying to, trying to like, play off of uh, the twist and all the other dance songs, the mashed potato and everything. Anyway. Okay, I want everybody to settle down now. We got some new we're going to show you, man. So I'll knock you dead when we come outside your head. You get ready? After that, his employers there at Pickwick thought it had some potential, and they decided to put together a band, you know, kind of fabricate a band around him and create the song, call the band The Primitives, and it included a kid named John Cale, who just moved to New York to study music and was playing viola in a theater somewhere. And it also had Tony Conrad, in it. and I don't know that much about Tony, but we know a thing or two about John Cale, so that's how those two came together. It's an interesting combination, and on paper, in the rock and roll world, does Lou Reed, who's doo-wop-influenced, gel with a viola player? Well, it didn't quite click in the ears of some of the uh, brands at Pickwick either. You know, you're having a hard <laughs> time expressing it. Well, they had a hard time understanding it, too. <laughs> Nonetheless, Kale thought Lou Reed had something, and like some of the other songs he was hearing... Obviously, you know, songs like Heroin became part of their musical partnership, and they stuck together. Just a strange combination when you think about it. Just a couple of our kids living on the Lower East Side trying to find their way in a world, trying to get a buck. 
And along comes Sterling Morrison to add to the mix. Hey, I remember you from uh, Syracuse days. Yeah, dude. Hey. You were in the choir crowd. How's your friend Jim and his sister Mo? Well, <laughs> Mo wasn't in the picture yet, but they had a drummer who wanted to play with them. So a guy named Anglis McLeese. And that was the formation of the Velvet Underground, the initial formation of the Velvets there on the Lower East Side. Man, they were really in the middle of it. They were totally committed to where they were. Because there's no other reason for them all to have ended up there within proximity, right? It's almost like the forces of Earth were pulling them to those points to come together so that they can do this. Oh, man. <laughs> Listen, art in its purest form is created for art's sake, right? With the mm -hmm. 10cc say, art for art's sake, money for God's sake. <laughs> well, McLeese didn't think. It was appropriate to take money for performing their art, that they were sellouts, and he quit. And yeah. that's when Mo Tucker comes into the picture. Yeah, she was originally brought in to only play the one gig that Anglis, uh, that first gig, and then yeah, she Yeah, fill-in gig. We need, hey, Mo, can you play drums for a fill-in? Sure. And then she <laughs> stuck. Well, if you saw her playing the way she plays, I never saw it, obviously. I've heard it. But when you see video of her playing, her style... It's visually captivating, you know, and her power is groundbreaking. I mean, she didn't know that she was this groundbreaking drummer. Maybe she felt something inside herself, but she jumps in there, and that's when everything starts to click in. It all starts at the back with the drummer. You need yeah. the drummer. You Driving need it. Yep. And at this point, let's be really clear. They're fully formed, right? Mm-hmm. And they're starting to make their way, and they're doing what they can do. And I'm sure they're doing a wide variety of appearances in bars and clubs and lofts and mm -hmm. whatever they can do, wherever they can play. Bar mitzvahs. That's what you're doing. Right. <laughs> Somewhere along the way, they come to the attention of Andy Warhol, who becomes their benefactor. Want to call it that? Sugar daddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, he brought them into his art collective and... A lot of his other people who were in the collective really started getting into what Lou and, and the guys were playing. And I shouldn't say guys because it infers that Mo is a male and mm -hmm. it's not. But when the Velvet started playing, you know, the rest of the collective certainly took notice. And I suspect seeing that their entry into the chemistry kit there involves Andy spending a lot of time and energy on them that there was some potential jealousy amongst the rest of the collective. Hey, why are they getting all of it? Warhol's time, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That whole Warhol thing is kind of wild, the whole art rock aspect. But I think you hear it in that very first Velvet Underground album. Oh, yeah. I mean, We're going to talk it. about yeah. that for sure. But, yeah, the whole Andy Warhol stuff is so bizarre and... It, well, artists who are groundbreaking in any medium usually have an element of that. They're not quite in sync with everybody else, and that's what gives them the perspective to create their art that's so unique that we all revere them, if you think about it. And Warhol was one of those, and he had both you know, underground and mainstream acceptance of his art. You know, the Campbell Soup Can thing, really people in kitchens across America thought that was pretty neat. You know what I'm saying? But he had a feel for art beyond the visual. 
he really saw himself as a scientist of sorts, trying to play with the chemistry and making things happen. And along those lines, he kind of pushes a presence and a, and a member into the Velvet Underground in the form of Nico. She was a singer, yes, but she's also a model and an actress. And he kind of got her in there. How did he get her into the band? That's pretty wild. Well, the word is that Lou wasn't for it at first, but he and Nico kind of hooked up. I was going to say, did she seduce him into joining? For a brief interlude is the way I think most people would put it. As was her presence in the Velvet Underground, she was only on that first album, and then she went her way. As will happen with artistic trifles. And at that time period, there was a lot of um, polyamorous activity, a lot. It was... oh. That was a big part of the factory, wasn't it? Absolutely. Okay, I'm just checking. <laughs> Absolutely. And that was before she hooked up with Jim Morrison. Right. That's so crazy, isn't it? You know? I know. The things we're learning along yeah. the way. And then all these... And we little... hope you're learning, too, out there. And the connections are insane. <laughs> yeah, they are. Now, we get around to talking about the Velvet Underground, and we are. And we get around to that famous quote about this whole thing. Although few people bought the album, most of them were inspired to form their own bands. Yes. The lasting influence of that first Velvet Underground album is that so many people who bought it were in bands. One guy, Vaclav Havel, who was probably the first poet ever elected president anywhere, it inspired him to run for and become president of Czechoslovakia. The Velvet Underground, inspiring actual political change as art is known to do. That's totally wild. He was the president of Czechoslovakia from 89 until they split from Slovakia and became the Czech Republic. And then he was the first uh, president of the Czech Republic. And his presence, you could feel it. When I was in Prague in 2000, he was still revered in the Czech Republic. And there was a lot of love for him. Well, the love for the Velvet Underground, that first album, really has lasted all these years. And I think there's still people out there, younger people, discover it and jump into music more because of what they feel and hear from it. But there was a lot of change in the Velvet Underground's universe. Warhol out as manager against John Cale's wishes because he, I, I think you see that Cale was more tightly tied to Warhol at this point because Lou wasn't happy with a lot of the things that were happening so they get a new manager and then kale leaves because reed wants him out that both sterling it. and mo aren't happy about how lou's acting doug yule comes in to play bass and keyboards and he would start you know becoming more involved vocally as his time in the band went on but it became more pop oriented and less a vehicle for art and more about Lou, maybe, in some people's mind. And he left in 70, and then they imploded in 71. Well, they kind of continued for, like, what, an album or two after yeah. Lou Reed left, but then it was like, no, 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 and it just wasn't working. When you start as a project, an art project, and that initial arc fizzles out, and you decide to call it a day, it's really hard to get back on the horse, but they did. They had one album, Squeeze, in 1973 after the initial thrust. But, you know, it's pretty much a wonderful thing at a wonderful time that made change happen 
and the music lasts forever. I mean, you can put that album on at any time and you can feel New York 1967 like you're in the time machine and <laughs> flying through the Internet. It's so wild to think that that first Velvet album was an inspiration for things like punk rock, because if you listen to it at all, it is anything but punk rock. It's almost like heroin folk or or something yeah. like or like a it's like chic drug art rock. I guess would be a way to describe the sound. But yeah, heroin folk was the first thing that came to mind when I was revisiting um, that first album this last week. Jump forward and listen to Down the Line, digest that, and then jump back and listen to The Velvets and you'll understand better what that really was. His influence on that as an art project, which is was is its initial thing, art amongst friends. That is what really, you know, set the tone. And as that whole thing spun out of axis, the push and shove of politics involved in rock and roll, and there's always politics in rock and roll. I don't give a shit what anybody says. Yes, there are. And that kind of shows, too, the difference between the Cage influence and the Reed influence. That's, I think, where we see that, and sad to say, I mean, we can come back and talk a little bit more after the break, about the music of the Velvets and the music of Lou Reed. But that's kind of the arc of what mattered most there in the Velvets part of our story this week on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Marcus, it's time to stop up and get a cold one and slide into those boldfoot socks. Affirmative, Captain, and more Lou and the Velvets next. Hey, folks, if you haven't checked out Boldfoot Socks yet, go to their website and do it today, boldfoot.com. And if you like what you see and you want to place an order, you can save 15% on us by entering the code HISTORY15 in the discount box. Now, Marcus, you've had some great personal experience wearing your Boldfoot Socks. That is correct, Ray. I am an active cyclist. After hearing Josh tell us about his experience running a race in the desert in his bold foot socks. I had to give it a try on the bike, and they held really well. My feet didn't feel funky afterward, and after my spin class, my feet felt great. Not all wet and yucky. Wet and yucky, bad. Feeling <laughs> bold, good. <laughs> Go to boldfoot.com and check out all the styles, and they've got a wide variety of styles, no matter what your mood is about your socks and uh, colors, designs. It all fits into what you want out of a sock that holds up, and they definitely give you that support you need. I know from the times I've worn mine. Make sure you go to boldfoot.com and use the code HISTORY15 to get 15% off of your first order. Look, they're your feet. Be bold. When you get thirsty, you need a beverage that you can count on, a beverage that will satisfy that thirst. And if you're a beer lover like me, and I know you are too, Marcus, nothing tops the fresh brews. At Crooked Eye Brewery. They make the brews right there. You can actually look in the window of the brew room and see the brew being made. 
And a lot of other things are happening uh, on weeknights, various things, including Thursday trivia, uh, the Wednesday blues jam. They also have open mic night, the first, third, and fifth Mondays of every month, if you get that first lucky third, fifth five. Monday. I can't do math when I'm a crooked eye. Not if I have, like, <laughs> one crooked IPA, I can tell you that. And open mic Mondays now alternates with Name That Song. Ray, I hear vinyl night's coming back to Crooked Eye. That's right. First Tuesday of the month, starting April 5th, I'll be back at Crooked Eye for Vinyl Night. Come on out and hang with us. And Marcus, they've announced a special concert at Crooked Eye May 15th. The great Philly legend, Charlie Gracie. Make sure you come spend a special Sunday afternoon with this Philly legend from 1 to 5 p.m. at Crooked Eye. Always something fun going on there. We're talking about Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro. And, of course, in Delco at Jamie's House of Music. Pouring the cure for what ailed you in Hapro since 2014. We'll see you at Crooked Eye. You know, it's funny, Marcus. I've been talking to our friend Shelly about something else we're working on, and he's been showing me all these pictures taken by Mick Rock, including that unbelievable black and white of Lou Reed that we always see. That was a Mick Rock photo? Yeah, Mick Rock. One of the great rock and roll photographers. Let's not get into that. We'll be here for an hour talking about what that's all about. No shit. We're here to talk about the Velvets. And Lou Reed, on this episode of The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll... That first album, you know, did inspire so many people to form bands. And some of those bands were parts of influential waves of different ways of approaching and playing rock and roll, which is what art is supposed to do. It's supposed to affect change. It's supposed to make you think about things. And there's a lot to think about on that first record. One of the songs that brought them together was Lou's song, Heroin, which he was all too familiar with at that point, right? I'm waiting for the man to the heroin, right? A lot of it was artsy. Wasn't what you would call connecting to the mainstream in any way, but it connected to a lot of people. Only enough to get it into the middle of the chart. I just thought it was cool that they were able to make this kind of an album in the middle of the summer of love. There was also the Velvet Underground. Let me just uh, stop and ask you a question. It just occurred to me. Okay. At least in March of 67. Do you think that the wave of the summer of love, all the music that it comprises that, which we have to do an episode about, by the way. Absolutely. Do you think that that and all the love and peace and positivity maybe, maybe stepped on the banana as it was turning brown on the sidewalk? Is mm-hmm. that a possible contribution to why it didn't get bigger? You know. I caught you, didn't I? You did. I just think culturally people were like, what the fuck is this? It's a little too out there for me. There are parts that are really good, and I think a lot of people could listen to little pieces of it, but I think a lot of people had, and the majority of the people had a hard time digesting the entire album. And listening back to it, and like Femme Fatale and a couple of the other songs on there, it's like, wow. This stuff was pretty wild. And looking at it now from uh, this perspective as we do the podcast, it's kind of mind-blowing that this album being as 
weird and at times feeling even disjointed in itself and awkward had such an impact on the people who bought it and felt it and really related to it. And this album, as artsy and as different as it is, sparked a hell of a lot of change all over the world musically. And despite everything you said being true, more influential music came off of the next record, White Light, White Heat, than came off that first record. You got the title track, White Light, White Heat, right? Sister Ray, that long form masterpiece that they created, it spoke to their art side and took up most of side two of the album. But these songs had as much or more impact long-term on fans of the Velvet Underground then maybe the first record did, because it certainly sold them. Didn't White Light, White Heat get Bowie kind of connected to Lou Reed them. in that point? Yeah. Because yeah. he played that song live a lot, especially in the early days. So there was that weird connection there. Well, there was a connection there that was very strong, both artistically and personally. David and Lou became pals. Some people say beyond pals. But musically... You could see it work in both ways. You know, Bowie working with him on uh, at least one album, right? He produced Transformer, and their collaborations were way more than that. I mean, they were hanging out a lot, talking, talking about music, talking about the thing, the scene. You know, and you get to the self-titled album from the Velvets, you know, you're really making amazing music, but not, not connecting out there. In radio world, if you want to call it, to teenagers like me who are out there in the suburbs, it's 1969, and we're connecting with all kinds of music. And I'm just telling you, the Velvet Underground wasn't one of them for me. Now, I know there are kids who are feeling differently than that, but I'm just saying. That album, I listened to a little bit of it. Even still today, it doesn't really connect with me the way that first album did eventually and especially the uh, loaded album with sweet jane which is the album i think yeah. i most connected to um, well that's the irony is is that's after kale leaves and it's all lou songs right mm -hmm. and you've got sweet jane rock and roll these are these are radio classics as aor underground radio comes into its own this stuff is right there 1970 every town had a new rock station playing all this underground rock and this album from the velvet underground was perfectly timed to take advantage of it with songs like those two moving forward i feel like this is the album i think when he recorded this album he knew what his next step was i really do I think that Lou Reed knew that this was his swan song with the Velvet Underground, and I think he knew which direction he was going to go on, and I think at some point he had visions of being a solo artist, writing his own songs, being completely in control of his work. We mentioned earlier about Sterling and Moe cashing out, too, after Lou left, but I didn't realize this. I just got a note from the research department. These kids are earning their pay today. Good. The album Squeeze is actually just Doug Yule doing everything except for drums, which were played by Ian Pace of Deep Purple. What? And a saxophone player that's not really identified, but it was all Doug Yule in the studio on that final record, which came out in February of 73, Squeeze. It's not really a Velvet's record, but by then, Lou was well on his way, man. He really was. He was... He was writing more fluidly 
just doing his thing and not being so caught up in trying to fit in to a band. He just went full-blown Lou Reed. <laughs> the self-titled debut in 72. Transformer, which we mentioned with Bowie producing, with yep. Mick Ronson yep. producing as well in 1972. He hits with Berlin in 1973. A great album, working with Bob Ezrin. It didn't have the commercial success that his work with Bowie had, but it was still pretty impressive. We knew what direction Lou Reed was moving in at that time, and we knew where his music was going, and the darkness of that sound, it's at times overwhelming, but... Yes, and Bowie brought it out on Transformer. He really did, and think about it this way. There's two sides to every question, or Mm -hmm. two sides to the mirror, right? On one hand, it's not really his mode, but Bowie and Lou team up to create Walk on the Wild Side, his biggest, most lasting, enduring song with Bowie's sax teacher, Ronnie Ross, blowing that amazing solo at the end. You think, oh, Uh it's Bowie, but no, it's Ronnie Ross. And then the other side of that thing is Vicious. One of my favorite Lou Reed post-Velvet songs, it just tears the lid off the sucker. Such a huge way to start that album and set the tone, without a doubt. I was thinking about the dark side of Lou Reed over this past week, getting ready for the recording of this conversation about Lou Reed and the Velvets. And while there's a darkness about it, it never felt like an evil darkness in any way, shape or form. It just felt like confusion and like the shit he went through as a child, as a teenager, before he got the electric shock treatment. And it feels like there's that kind of darkness, that kind of a mental darkness, dealing with depression and angst and anxiety and maybe not being the same as mainstream society. But it never felt evil in any way, shape or form. In some ways, Lou Reed's presence made it acceptable to say I feel like that guy. I feel a little darker than the rest. I feel a little more anxiety than you. I feel this differently than him or her. And it's related to the anxiety and bullshit that society was still throwing around in those days, still some in these days too, by the way, Mm -hmm. about people and their sexuality and how they thought it was their business, what you did or who you slept with. Then is now. It's nobody's fucking business who you sleep with, what you do. It's up to you and that person and the people that are around you. It doesn't matter to people like you and me, who Lou Reed slept with, whether he and Bowie were lovers or not. It doesn't matter. It was all meant to create buzz, press. And it did. <laughs> it did. It did. Oh, you know who else uh, was a guest musician on that uh, Transformer record? Trevor uh, Boulder played trumpet. Oh, yeah, that's one of his hidden talents, right? Yeah. (laughs) I'll tell you one thing that I never really got or understood was this whole thing about his uh, Metal Machine music album. Mm -mm. And uh, reading is always a great reminder of things that you relearn, and we're doing a lot of that on the podcast. Lewitt claimed that he had invented heavy metal, and he was saying that this album, which is basically four sides that are, whole side is one song, was the ultimate conclusion of the genre 
close the book on heavy metal, I said. I invented it, therefore I can do that. I guess that's the way he was looking at it, but unless somebody who knows better can clear us up on that, I, I don't know what else you can say. One of the things that I read about that uh, Metal Machine music album is he did that just to get out of a record contract, or it was the oh. final album of a contract, or he was totally pissed off at the label, and he just was like, yeah, you, let it do motherfuckers, it, this is my album. It's called Metal oh Machine Music, and it's feedback. Hang on, hang on a second. I'm, I'm, I, the research department did such a good job earlier. I'm just double-checking that. No, nah, the next record was on RCA, too. But it could have been one of those, fuck you, this is my album, put it out, bitches. You yep. know what I mean? Could that, have been that. That's hilarious. That album, eh. Well, you know, he had mixed success through the years, and he followed his muse. He does Coney Island Baby and dedicates it to his girlfriend at the time a trans woman named Rachel Humphreys. It was pretty early on in the mid-70s to be openly discussing these things, whether mm -hmm. in interviews or in music. In that way, it's funny that, you know, we're recording this during Pride Month, and it's ironic to think about how different the whole thing was in the mid-70s, the, the period we're talking about with Coney Island Baby and Rock and Roll Heart from Lou Reed. These albums, position, really helped a lot of people then and continues to help people now to be true to who they are. Yeah, he was uh, pretty bold at that time, and he yeah. definitely loved to push the envelope. And if you really look at it, in a way, even though he was less outspoken, he pushed the envelope a lot further than David Bowie did. Bowie did a lot of stuff, and he pushed the envelope like nobody's business. He had more of that, fuck you, I'm going to do what I want attitude in so many ways. Bowie did it subtly by behavior lou did it overtly with a fist in your face politically it's kind of a <laughs> difference i think lou reed should be getting a lot more credit for the doors he opened and the conversations he forced people to have because of his music and his lifestyle he was a conversation starter on all this stuff he and several other artists of high profile it was something that he left us with and i think he'd be smiling right now he embraced marriage because he found his match in Laurie Anderson. But I think if he was still with us, he'd be sitting there watching everything that's going on in our society, the positive changes mostly. And he'd be rooting for a comeback for his beloved New York City, which is really still struggling, Marcus, from what we understand. And we wish them nothing but love and success and, and getting all of it back mm -hmm. as we start to get further on in our uh, post pandemic life it's starting to happen it's actually starting to happen dude i gotta tell you about a story my story of hanging out with lou reed you got you got a minute oh i've got plenty of minutes <laughs> <laughs> you know and i'm trying to figure out which album it was for sure it might have been 1984 could it have been new sensations that's what i'm trying to figure out but i don't think so i think it was 19 i don't think the uh event that i'm going to talk about was happening in 1984 city Lights but it could have been next. mistrial in 86 it was either mistrial in 86 or new york in 89 and I checked with a couple of my people who might have been involved, friends who might have been involved, and so far none of them were. So I'm just going to tell the story that happened as far as I'm concerned that day because Lou Reed was in town, and he was basically doing a promo tour, and he came to visit us at WMMR in Rittenhouse Square, 19th and Walnut, 
and was interviewed by Pierre Robert on the air. And we were talking to him as the interview finished about what was coming up at 2 o'clock because he had heard us mention the Hawaiian Shirt Gonzo Friday Happy Hour. And off the air, he says, so what's this Hawaiian Shirt Gonzo Friday thing? And I quickly described what it was. He wondered why I was wearing Hawaiian shirt and Pierre was wearing Hawaiian shirt. Everybody's wearing them. So I explained the whole concept to him, how we would have a happy hour every Friday. Everybody would come in Hawaiian shirts, but not everybody, but most people. And that we would basically have a live broadcast and, you know, and have a Friday happy hour in Hawaiian shirts every week. And people would wear wacky hats, whatnot. He turns to me in dead pants. I got to see this. Um, i'm like a 26 year old kid i'm hanging out with lou reed which is cool enough for me right and i just full stop i look at his record rep and i'm kind of like what do we do and the record rep as always knows what to say steps in and i can't remember who it was so if it was you please contact us let us know he says well do you want to go over there lou and he looks at the guy and the guy looks at him and they both look at me and he goes, can we? I said, well, yeah, if you really want to. And I said, and if it'd make you feel better, I'll come with you. And he goes, yeah, that's a good idea. So somehow we all then got from 19th and Walnut over to the Trocadero at 10th and Arch. And we got there right around 2, 2.30 and people were already there wearing orange shirts, getting drunk on a Friday afternoon with Joe Bonadonna broadcasting live. Senior, Joe Bonadonna, senior, you have to now, you have to, you know, delineate. Can you believe this? He comes in for an interview, and he wants to go see what this wine shirt Gonzo thing is all about. Was he dr- Gonzo probably? Was he dressed in black when he came into the studio? <laughs> black T-shirt, black jeans, black jacket. I think so. Yeah, but let me go check the picture real quick. Yeah, I just took a quick look. All black. Ah, uh, figures. <laughs> figures, Lou. So he gets there. Nobody knows he's coming. Not even Bonadonna, I don't think. So we get there. And we, we we get out of the car. Nobody really fusses. We kind of walk in, and I'm going to hang tight to him to make sure nobody's giving him a hard time, right? We get inside. We walk up, and I get ahead of him so that I can get to Joe first to tell him, like, Lou Reed's right behind me, right? And I get to him, and he goes, Lou Reed is right behind you. And I go, yes. And he goes, what the fuck is going on? That's amazing. <laughs> like he couldn't believe it. So he actually talked with Joe, and I don't remember the content of their conversation except for Joe was asking him, so what do you think? And Lou was just standing there calm in the middle of chaos, you know. And a couple people came over, and I tried to talk to him, and and I, I kind of like put myself between them, and I looked at him, and he gave me the kind of like the way a guy would give a guy a look, like, yeah, it's okay, you know. And people were talking to him. I think a couple of people got stuff signed. Nobody had like all their Lou Reed albums or anything like that, but it was really cool because fans were like, Lou fucking Reed's here at the truck. What's going on? <laughs> this is bizarre. This is fantasy land. I don't think he ever got a Hawaiian shirt or anything. He uh-huh. was uh, like Johnny Cash, known for his uh, lack of color. Wow. It's great. Anyway, story. so that's my Lou Reed story. I know. It's the only time I ever met him. And I'll post the picture. It's uh, Bonadonna and Robert and me and Lou Reed. It's pretty damn cool. That's really I just really gotta cool. say, it's really cool. Always love the guy. There are songs of his that I love more than others. There are times I can listen to everything on an album. There are times when I just want to hear the songs I love and just enjoy that time when Lou Reed and I lived on the planet at the same time, right? We're lucky that way, Marcus. Yeah, we are. We're lucky. And then we get to talk about these people that we shared planet Earth with. How fun. How fun. Intersections are always more fun, but, you know, or not always, but usually. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, I just wish he was still with us. Me too. 
Well, this is what we do here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It is, by the way, in case we haven't mentioned it in a while, we haven't. Uh, listener episode month. And while uh, others may participate more directly, we have to thank Frank McKenzie from the UK for suggesting this episode about the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed. Just getting started on our next wacky listener adventure. We've got more to come in the next few weeks. So, uh, July listener episode month here on the podcast and as always we're looking for your feedback you can email us at imbalancehistory at gmail.com you can also hit us up on facebook the imbalance twitter. history of rock and roll twitter and of course instagram so please reach out please throw some feedback our way if we miss anything if we yeah. forgot anything left it out please let us know the other thing i'm really interested in knowing is your feelings about lou how he affected you uh, if you got some help from him in his music or you got some perspective anything like that i would love to hear it and if you started a band because you heard the first album you absolutely must email us at imbalancehistory at gmail.com. Like, that would be crazy to get an email, wouldn't it? I would love to hear <laughs> from somebody who got that album when it was new and started a band. Even if it was a band that never went far or anything like that or never yeah. made a big name. But because you got that album, you started a band. We definitely want to hear those stories. Listen, when we first started the concept of Listener Episode Month, I was a little nervous about how it would go. And here we are, the first week already in the, you know, in the can, so to speak. And I'm really looking forward to next week when we'll talk with Jefe Tenejo from Houston about his five favorite pick-me-up songs. And see, that's how it's going to go through all, all through the month. That'll be a fun episode as well. Jefe's a great guy, and I look forward to hearing his list as well. Hey, I'm going to pretend I'm Herbie Flowers, right? And I'm going to pick up the uh, stand-up bass. Okay. You be Ronnie Ross, and you play us out with that sax solo. Take a walk on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. It's been a fun month. Punk Rock Month has been my friend. But I gotta say, next week is the final episode of Punk Rock Month 2022. It is. And after listening to that Velvet Underground episode, I think I'm going to go start a band so that I can sound like the band we're talking about next week. These four dirty, nasty Filthy. lads from London. A new episode all about the fucking Sex Pistols next week on the Imbalance History of Bollocks. <laughs> <laughs>
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 